Welcome to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Getting Common covers a variety of topics and features guests from business, law, politics, government, education, and some of the most insightful entrepreneurs. It's a refreshing, common-sense approach to some of the most important discussion points today. Now, here is your host, Carlos Chapman. Hello, everyone. I'm Carlos Chapman, your host of Getting Common. In my day job, I am an associate professor at Washington and Lee's Law School. Um, I teach and research business law, including corporate governance and ethics. Uh, I teach uh, contracts, and I focus extensively on corporate personhood. The topic of today's show is what's in a name, and we will be focusing on Confederate naming and Confederate monuments with a focus on uh, my institution, Washington and Lee. Um, I've assembled some dynamic guests today, um, and what we all have in common is that we've all had connections to Robert E. Lee and Washington and Lee, but we've also had some viral moments where we have encountered um, some folks who are very, very committed to the lost cause and um, who have responded to our opposition to that um, in a negative way. Um, I'll also note that today's format has a today's show has a different format than what we've had before uh, because we have so much to cover and I do have more guests than usual. Um, so I'll start by letting our guests introduce themselves. And I think it would help if when you introduce yourself, let folks know you know, what was your viral moment in connection with either the name of WNL or with uh, Confederate monuments and things in general? Uh, first, Adenike. Hi, everyone. My name is Adenike Miles Soramade. I'm a WNL alum, and my connection to this movement um, was that I started the petition with two of my other friends that attended the school as well to have the names removed from the diplomas. And then that turned into the whole change the name campaign. Nika? Good morning, my name is Nika Denny and I am an assistant professor of history, uh, core faculty in Africana studies and affiliate faculty in women's gender and sexuality studies at Washington and Lee University. Uh, I think my moment was over the summer immediately on the heels of the decision to keep the name uh, I published an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education talking about the impact that boards of trustees can have looking both at the refusal to change the name as well as the Nicole Hannah Jones tenure denial, uh, the impact that boards of trustees can have in these types of instances uh, on academic freedom, specifically for black faculty and people who are working on issues of race, oppression and inequality. All right, Rob. Hey, everybody. My name is Rob Lee. I am the author of A Sin by Any Other Name, Reckoning with Racism and the Heritage of the South. Uh, I am a pastor. I'm an activist, but uh, also I bear the name of, of the man who, whose legacy we are talking about today as a descendant of the Lees of Virginia, uh, which we'll talk more about. Um, but I have been active in that field. Uh, I guess my viral moment came in 2017 after the Unite the Right rally. In Charlottesville, I went on the MTV Video Music Awards and uh, spoke about the need to remove my ancestor's name and likeness from, from issues such as these. All right. And then last but not least, Ty. Hi, my name is Ty Sigley. I'm a professor at Hamilton College. I retired as Brigadier General in the U.S. Army. I'm a professor emeritus at West Point. Uh, and my, I had two viral moments. One was in 2015 when I uh, said the Civil War was about slavery and that, so that uh, video's got like 30 million views and, and plenty of hate mail to go with it. Uh, the second was I gave a talk in Lee Chapel right after the Unite the Right rally. 
where I said Lee chose treason to preserve slavery. And that became the book uh, that I wrote, Robert E. Lee and Me, A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause, uh, where I also call Lee a traitor for slavery. Awesome. Thank you all so much for uh, joining us today. I mean, it is a hard topic and there are moments when I think it shouldn't be. Um, My viral moment with this issue is when I told the Washington Post that Washington Lee was Mecca for white supremacists. So, um, which I think is accurate when you think about what Mecca is. It's it's where you go on a pilgrimage. And as one of my colleagues said, if if you were to do a tour of white supremacy, um, you can't have a complete tour without going to Lexington, Virginia. Um, in addition to going to Richmond, in addition to going to other places, but with with what is in Lexington, it is very difficult uh, to to have that tour and not go there. Um, now I'm going to go slightly out of order of what I said we were going to do today, um, because I realize we are using some terms that I think people are not familiar with, and we do have the benefit of having two historians on the the panel, um, and so I would like for Ty and Nika to explain to us what the lost cause myth is. Um, and either of you can can go and, and, and do it. Nika, by all means. Sure. Um, though I will say that I think you spend more time focusing on some of these legacies, so you will probably do this more justice than I will. Uh, but more or less, this lost cause, or the myth of the lost cause, rather, uh, has to do with the idea that the Civil War, it was not about slavery. It was about states' rights. Uh, at which point, I generally ask people, states' rights to do what? States' rights to own slaves. Um, And also, it has to do with the idea that the Civil War and the Confederacy, um, this was a noble cause. This was one where people were being honorable. They were were putting their lives on the line for a cause they believed in. Um, It it has a lot of ideas about valor and bravery um, that I think are in tension with what Ty's work looks at with the sorts of treason that were taking place. Ty? Yeah, I, I think that's great. I think if you imagine that um, the South went to war to protect and expand the institution of slavery, and they didn't just lose, they were crushed. How do you come to terms with that defeat? And so they created sort of an alternate history. And But what is crucial about this is that with Confederate monuments, the lost cause uh, mythology uh, that Nika talked about, which is really the ideology, um, Jim Crow segregation, uh, disenfranchisement, and lynching is that it created a, a racial police state in the South whose purpose is to retain white political power through white supremacy. And the lost cause is the ideological foundation for this, uh, which is a series of beliefs, a, a huge lie uh, to ensure white political power. Uh, and it worked. And that's the other thing is that we should know that this worked. Um, and it worked through violence. It worked through textbooks. It worked through films. Everything that you could imagine reinforces so that it started out as a Southern phenomenon but by the 19, you know, by the by the turn of the 20th century into the 1930s, this is a national phenomenon. And if you think about every religion, and the lost cause is in a way a religion, every religion has a Christ figure. The Christ figure for this religion is Robert E. Lee. He is the the greatest of all, the the uh, the the epitome of a Southern gentleman, and, and at the highest level is a Virginia gentleman. And so I think that lost cause is a has a really pernicious influence in the country and particularly in the South to ensure white political power. Well, and Ty, I'll add to, if I may jump in, Carlos, I think that if, 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 if Robert E. Lee is the Christ figure, then Lexington is Bethlehem where Christ, this, this whole mythology, this whole identity was born and created Lexington, Virginia, the Lee chapel where they, where they, they interred Lee and 
funeral IST, and that was the place where all of this this mythos was really coming to a head at the that time. So, so we've got to really examine what Lexington and what Washington and Lee means as this crucible and cradle uh, for both, you know, the for both Robert E. Lee's legacy and the lost cause uh, mythology that we now have. And that's a great segue to a discussion of the decision not to change the name and, and what that aftermath has been like, um, uh, you know, for for those of us who are still in the community and connected to the community. Um, and in particular, uh, you know, for the folks on, on the panel, um, you know, I would say, you know, although the faculty voted overwhelmingly in support of the name change, uh, the students voted overwhelmingly in support of the name change. Uh, when the name change decision didn't happen, um, the press was not calling my white colleagues. They were calling me and Mika and Brandon, who's not here, and our other black colleagues. Um, and when people were sending emails, um, you know, saying you lost, ha ha ha, and all the other nice things that they said to us in email, they were not, my white colleagues did not get those emails. You know, it, it was those of us who, who got those emails. Um, and so at this, this point, I would love to hear from Mika and Adenike about like what the aftermath of not changing the name uh, has been like for you personally? Like, what, what are some of the things that have happened with you, uh, happened to you and, 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 and with you uh, personally with the name change? And let's start with that, Anike. What, is it, what has it been like? Um, I would say for me, it's been the same since the, I'm so sorry, my voice. Um, it's been the same since the school denied us the option to change the diplomas. Um, during that time, I received very nasty um, hate mail from alums like alums calling me out of my name, alums telling me that I should even I should be happy to just be in America. I should be sent back to Africa. While I am Nigerian, I'm from Boston. So um, that was insane to me. Um, and then just no support from the school. And I just think that that's been the running thing with the institution. Anything that is set into place to, to steer them away from the edification of the Confederacy, they just try to stay just try to stay silent and I just feel like there's just never any support so for me it's just been it's just been the same it's been the same for me I I'm not shocked I'm not surprised but I do feel that um the school should be embarrassed of the lack of lack of change Mika yeah I would absolutely agree that the school should be embarrassed. I think that one of the things that is perhaps most embarrassing uh, is when people say, oh, well, Washington and Lee is slow to change, right? As if this is, um, as if this is not a deliberate choice, right? People can change with speed or they can change slowly, it's, but it's not an accident that the institution is slow to change. This is a choice. Um, and so, so to sort of abdicate all responsibility in that regard, I think is extremely embarrassing, as Adenike mentioned. Um, I think that what is also embarrassing is the sort of refusal to acknowledge that not changing the name of the institution, it's not simply a dog whistle to white supremacists. It's a foghorn, right? It is not a subtle signal at all. In the year 2021, uh, to choose to remain associated with two slaveholders, to choose to remain associated with the Confederacy. These things are choices. Uh, and I think that a lot of the 
comments that I've heard over the past few months um, are refusing to recognize the impact that this has on diversity and inclusion efforts, are refusing to recognize the impact that this has on Black students, on Black faculty. The name of the institution is openly antagonistic to Black people. It it, it just is, right? I don't think that this is something that's up for debate. Um, Yet the, the impulse, I think, is to say that, oh, like these Black people are making a big deal out of nothing. Right. When really it's not. And the name is symbolic. Diversity and inclusion efforts cannot start and end with the name of an institution. uh, But changing the name is a necessary but not sufficient component of trying to actually create an atmosphere that is able to seriously engage with questions of race and racism. You know, now in the trustee statement, um, they note that they are honoring the good things about Robert E. Lee and not the bad things. They're, they're honoring his life as a academic. Um, they parrot some of the lost cause, you know, stuff about him being noble. Um, and, and my next question for the entire panel is, is it possible to separate the two Robert E. Lees? Or are there even two Robert E. Lees? What do you think? Rob? Let's start with Rob, since you, you know yeah. you are named after the guy. <laughs> I actually don't think so. Um, if you look at Lee's writings in Lexington and his testimony before the United States Senate uh, during his time as president of Washington and Lee, the, the, the overt racism there, it was it was white supremacist rhetoric, uh, maybe without the war. Uh, maybe that's the way to describe it. It was white supremacist rhetoric without the war. But that doesn't change the fact that it was still white supremacist rhetoric, that he was talking about this idea that that, that black people could be educated in this country um, because of their their lack of ability to learn. I mean, all the, you know, so you can talk about his abilities as an academic. Well, you should talk about them as a racist academic and how he thought that people should learn in this country and the learning economy that they were starting to reckon with there in Lexington and beyond. So, so this, this notion that Lee is both a uh, soldier and statesman and, and Christian and gentleman, it, it, it's really misguided because it, it, it seeks for all of us the ability uh, to, to paint over and to whitewash uh, even more so the legacy of this man who is deeply misguided and deeply wrong. Um, and, you know, it, as I've learned, people don't like when you say that. They worship this man. This man, uh, you know, Ty said it so eloquently that there, he learned about, uh, he was a Christian, but he learned more about Robert E. Lee or something to the effect of he he, he kind of worshiped Robert E. Lee more. Uh, that was, he was next to Robert E. Lee. And for all of us white guys growing up in the South, that was the way it was and is now. So we've got to do something to be honest about Robert E. Lee. Uh, to be willing to reckon, uh, you know, that's a word I really like to talk about, reckoning with this man who is who is both um, deeply problematic, but also it, it, the answer should be simple after a quick listen, listening and learning of his history. Uh, now, Ty and Nika are historians. Um, you know, I, I find it fascinating that, you know, we, we've got historians on all all these campuses in the South, we've got people who've grown up in the South, and yet there's so little information um, out there about what Rob is speaking of. You know, there's so little information out there about the full legacy. Um, You know, how do we end up with people who are educated, people who are educated in history, still believing that you could possibly separate the man into two? 
Uh, what do you think, Ty? Culture is stronger than history. Culture is stronger than facts. And, uh, you know, if you think at WNL, it is, it was when I went there, I graduated in 1984, it was still known as General Lee's College. The history textbook, I mean, the history of WNL, which was written in late 1960s, is called General Lee's College. He was a worshipped person there. And every decision that was made at WNL, including going co-ed, was put in the context of what would General Lee do? Honest to goodness, that's why they made a co-ed decision. They said, oh, this is what General Lee would have done. So the whole, the whole understanding of, of, at WNL and of, of the South was through this lens. And if you talk about filmic representations, whether it's Gone with the Wind or, um, uh, or, or books or anything else, he was he's literally on the pedestal in a way that, that, that for Protestants, even Jesus isn't on that pedestal. So the idea that, uh, uh, that, that Lee would be this sort of sainted figure was, was so much stronger in the culture and culture trumps facts every time. Very, very true. Nika, do you have anything to add? I think that part of it is a sort of um, repeated refusal to learn. Again, right, I think that all of these things are choices that are being made. And by that, I mean that grandparents are teaching parents and parents are teaching children. And there is such a strong attachment to looking at history through a very whitewashed lens, looking at history through the ways that it impacts predominantly white people, uh, at least in American history, uh, and studying African-American history is tangential. Uh, I think that if people were to broaden their view of who Americans are uh, and what impacts various historical events have had on all Americans, right, I think that that would lead us to different questions and that would lead us to different answers, right? When we're thinking about what role slavery has played in this country, we're able to think differently about how the Civil War was not a war for states' rights or over economic problems alone, but we're able to account for how slavery was a central part of the economy. We can't separate the two. And I think that this idea that we can separate slavery from the Civil War um, is something that arises by not studying African-American history closely. And I think that that's something that then opens the door to continue to separate Lee from his racism in ways that are simply impossible. If you understand the actual breadth and scope of slavery, white supremacy, and racism in the United States. Now, now Adenike, you are the most recent student on the panel. Um, you know, Ty graduated in, in the 80s. You just graduated this this summer. Um, you know, as someone who is a student on the community, um, did you feel like what was being promoted to you was Lee as an academic or, you know, what Robert E. Lee did you see in, in your time at Washington and Lee? Um, I feel like my professors didn't talk about it much. I feel like the students would always say um, that he was an amazing general. Uh, that's not something that I'm interested in, but I just believe that it's just any way to try to make it seem like you're not racist is these, this was how the conversations would go um, during class time. So for me, I think it would just be people who feel like, oh, well, I have family that was in the military. I respect the military. He was a great general. That's kind of like how that was always brought to us. And it's just gaslighting. Mm -hmm. It was just and, and gaslighting at its finest. 
And, and with getting the portraits off the diploma, and I think, um, you know, I'll explain a little bit what, what Adenike's movement was about. Um, at Washington and Lee, uh, I, I think it's interesting. I have a lot of friends who went to Washington and Lee, and I did not see a Washington and Lee diploma until I started working at Washington and Lee. And I think that's telling um, that, that my friends would not let me see their diplomas. Um, and on the Washington and Lee diplomas, there is a portrait of George Washington and there is a portrait of Robert you. E. Lee. Oh yeah, show us. Yeah, so yeah, that's a Washington and Lee diploma, portraits of, of the two men on it. And I have so many friends, I'm from Houston and so many of my high school friends and other friends went to Washington and Lee and I'd never seen a diploma. Um, and so I got there and thought, how hard could it be to take portraits off the diploma? Like, how hard could that be? Like, it's weird to have a portrait on a diploma in the first place. Um, and Adenike and her classmates started this petition that, you know, drove people insane, right? That there were so many people who were like, how dare you take these portraits off? Um, which just, you know, goes to show, you know, what, what, it, what is that about? And I think it's notable that the portrait of Robert E. Lee is, is not of him as a professor. I believe he has on a uniform. Does he have on a uniform? Yeah. Well, he did, and they changed that picture, and they just um, put him in a suit. But I think that we need to highlight the fact that when we asked for the change of the diploma, we just asked for the option. And instead of the institution allowing us to choose what we wanted on our diplomas that we paid for, um, the response was very much just, Robert Lee did amazing things. You should essentially be happy that he was a part of this institution because if not, there wouldn't be a law school, so you wouldn't be here. And, and that Can was a response say, from the board. Just, just one point on that. I do think it's interesting we should note that there are two instances of where these protest movements, one when, the, when they took the flags out of Lee Chapel, the second with the, uh, uh, with, with, that you led uh, with the diploma, both led uh, by Black students. And I think that it's, it's, it's important to highlight that change comes to WNL when students particularly protest against this. And I think that's a, a vital part to say. It's not as though the school is changing on its own without people mentioning it. It took Black students in both cases to protest before change came. Yes. So well done. Yes. Thank you. I, like, I, you know, I always say. Um, what's most upsetting to me about a professor at Washington and Lee is how much labor our students do um, to make the, the institution better and how much resistance there is um, to students making those efforts. Um, you know, I don't think you should have to do that work. I think that, you know, we, we should, we sh I think we should be leading it as professors at the least, but if not professors, it should, it should come from higher up. Um, and the idea that it takes students in 2016 to get Confederate flags off of a university campus um, is a little bit crazy. Um, and I, and I, you know, I, I look at my colleagues who've been there for 20 years or more and, and wonder how did you sit on a campus that long with Confederate flags on your campus and not do anything about it? Um, and, and, and so I think the, the blame is more than just on the trustees. It's, it's on all the members of the community who can look the other way to things like that. So this is a great uh, segue um, to talk a little bit about Lee Chapel and what it looks like and, and what it is, is like. Um, and I will say, um, I did not see Lee Chapel before I accepted my offer to work at Washington and Lee. Um, you know, Adenike mentioned that she had not seen Lee Chapel either. 
Um, it's not called Lee Chapel anymore. It's called University Chapel. But it it is a, I don't know how to describe the experience the first time you see it, um, especially as a Black person to walk in and, and see this building. Um, so, you know, Ty, you do such a great job, you know, in your book and elsewhere of describing what Lee Chapel is about. Um, could you just describe what Lee Chapel is for folks who've never been to Lexington and seen it? Yes, well, it's a chapel. I mean, the first thing is the name. The name is Lee and Chapel together. And as you walk in, it look it has all the uh, uh, accoutrements of a chapel, of a Christian Protestant chapel. That's what it looks like. Pews. It has an apse, uh, a sanctuary. I was an Episcopalian acolyte growing up. I know my way around a church. Not as much as Rob, but I do know my way around a church. But it's missing the things that you would think that would be in a church. There's no cross. There's no hymn. There's no place where the hymns are listed. There's no pulpit. Uh, but there, but everything else is there. And as you go forward into the church, as you first walk in, there's this huge plaque that says, um, here's the, uh, the people that died in the Rockbridge Artillery, all the Confederate names that died. And as you're going through, you'll stop on the left and there's a little plaque that said, here's where General Lee sat during services. Then you go up onto the stage uh, and as you walk up the steps into the apse, the sanctuary, the Holy of Holy, there on the bottom says United Daughters of the Confederacy. Uh, that gave money for this chapel. On the on stage right is 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 a picture of Washington. He used to be in uniform, by the way, in the British uniform, not American. And then on the stage left is Lee in Confederate uniform with this sort of beatific smile on his face with the light coming down, sort of lifting all this, oh, this hallelujah chorus as you do it. Then you go on into the apse, the sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, and there's the altar. Now, in most altars, you know, it's a, just a table and that's where the Eucharist uh, is done, but not there. Here it is Lee, a, a, a statue of Lee lying asleep on the battlefield in Confederate uniform um, with his hand on the sword, uh, with his boots uncovered and ready to rise up to fight for the white people of the, of the South, ready to fight for his social system of slavery. And there, there's a huge uh, uh, sort of uh, circle saying the state of Virginia as though he belonged to the state itself. And this is clearly meant to show that Lee is a Christ-like figure. He is literally in the sanctuary of the chapel. And the first time, just one other thing about that, and then used to be surrounding that were Confederate battle flags that the U.S. Army had captured and given back to the Museum of the Confederacy and then were put around there. But I, I think the best way to describe it from my, 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 my wife is, uh, she's an Air Force brat. So the first time I walked her in there to show it to her, um, you know, she had this reaction was like, oh my God, I mean, this is, it's like blasphemous to the, to the, to the first commandment. Um, and she said, get me out of here. By the way, I should say one other thing. Downstairs, it is like a reliquary to a saint, his office untouched uh, for 160 years. Outside is Traveler. And by the way, Traveler, his horse, bones buried there, and people eat apples and oranges and pennies, always face down. Why? So that, so that Lincoln's head is not visible to his master, and so Lincoln will have to kiss Traveler's ass. So it is, it is absolutely, um, it's, it's, it's abominable, it's hideous, uh, and it is, it, and I, this is just for me as a white, as a, as a white historian, I, I can't even imagine how it must be for, uh, for others who, uh, who, who bring that, bring a different uh, set of experiences into there. Now, now, Rob, the first time you went into Lee Chapel was when you came down to visit us um, and you did a talk about your book um, with our uh, our colleague, Ted Delaney. Uh, could you tell us what it was like for you the first time you, you walked into Lee Chapel? Well, by that point, I had like preached and, and, and spoken. Uh, I had some national prominence, so I'd preached and spoken in other university chapels, university sanctuaries, university churches. 
this was nothing like that. And I, I had that like boot on my chest feeling. I told you that Carlos that day that we, when we went in there, I was like, this is not, this is not of God or of anything. And so why are we comparing it to such? It was, it, it was the same feeling that Ty's wife felt of like, this is not appropriate in any sense of the phrase. It, it, of course, it's interesting to see the, how, how backwards people can get with this stuff. But when people get backwards and then violent and then attack and then are, are racist, and, and that's when you have to draw the line. And I'm afraid that we aren't drawing the line hard enough on Lee Chapel. You know, uh, there's a church just down the way from from Washington and Lee that actually changed their name after what happened in Charlottesville in 2017. They couldn't bear to live with the legacy of being Robert E. Lee Memorial Episcopal Church anymore. So now they're Grace Episcopal Church, and I applaud them for that. But it seems like Washington and Lee is in far slower pace or, or no pace at all to really adjust this. But, you know, the other thing I'll say, Carlos, that is so hard for me to think about is, you know, Ty and I are both white people. We, we live in this world. We work in this world and we see this a lot. People like you and Ted Delaney and Nikkei, um, who are, who are so, who are so involved in this and have to live this life with this horrific figure looming over you. I, I live with it in a different way. Um, but, but it's painful to watch because I mean, Ted Delaney was one of the greatest scholars of our time. Uh, and yet he still lived with the pain of having to deal um, with, with, um, with Robert E. Lee looming. Definitely. Definitely. Um, you know, and I think, you know, I, I think a lot of us came to WNL because of, of Ted, you know, I think, you know, he was someone who convinced, I wouldn't say convinced, but it was conversations with Ted uh, that made me feel like it was something that was doable and that was worth doing. And I think a lot of people who came around the era of when I came did so because of those conversations with Ted and because of his work and his legacy. Um, and so much of the history was exposed because of Ted's work and Ted's legacy. Um, and I think he definitely needs more credit um, for what he did as a native Lexingtonian and as someone whose entire life was connected to Washington and Lee in the way that it was. And you know, for him to, I don't think these changes happen without him. So I think, you know, it's, it's very important to acknowledge him and, and his legacy. Nika, have you been in Lee Chapel yet? Uh, I have not been in Lee Chapel. Uh, I never intend to step foot in there uh, because I have no real reason to, um, not even for the novelty. Um, it, it, it does not sound like a particularly compelling place to be. Uh, and I, I don't see the need for me personally as a black woman uh, to go into a chapel that is venerating Robert E. Lee. It just, it just sounds ridiculous. It sounds laughable to be honest um, that I would for just the idea of me willingly going in there without being compelled to in some way, shape or form um, to go back to Adenike's previous point about how the school should be embarrassed. I think it's also embarrassing that there used to be required events for students in there. Black students, really know any student, but particularly black students should not be forced to go into Lee Chapel for any ceremony or whatever it is that was taking place in there. So I, I don't think that's a requirement anymore. I hope not. Um, but I, I, I've never set foot in there and I never intend to. Uh, I did, this is funny a little bit in a bad way. I did accidentally direct some, some uh, visitors to campus to the chapel um, because I was, I was in a rush. I was trying to get to class. 
Um, and, and, and I saw that people looked lost. So I tried to hang back a little bit so I didn't have to give them directions because I was late. But they very clearly needed directions and they waited for me to get out of the car. Uh, so they said, oh, I'm looking for the museums. I said, okay, we have a couple museums. Which ones are you looking for? And they said, oh, any museums. That was a lie. Because then I proceeded <laughs> to list the museums. I said, well, we have this one museum that has, uh, that has abolitionist ceramics. Uh, that we have another museum that has an exhibit I helped to curate with art by a black woman artist named Elizabeth Catlett. Her work looks at social justice uh, and African-American civil rights and Latin America. Uh, and I said, and then there's a museum with Robert E. Lee. They said, oh yeah, we want that one, right? And so they, they, they knew, uh, and I, I, I'm mentioning this not because it's, I think it's funny that I accidentally directed them there, um, but because I think it signals that even people who are celebrating Lee they know I shouldn't tell this black woman I'm here looking for where Robert E. Lee is, right? They know that it's offensive, and yet they want us to tolerate it anyways. Well, and you know, they have that weird gift shop that I think we need to mention too, that's down in the bottom that I think that's run by the Daughters of the Confederacy. And um, it's not run by the university, I don't think anymore. But you can literally buy literal little paper dolls of Robert E. Lee, little statues and figurines that you can, like, I remember when we were there, that lady said, well, why don't you take that home to your kids? And I didn't have kids at the time, but it was appalling to think that there was something there that you could buy for your kids and, and you know, prop up this legacy uh, for future generations to come simply by having paper dolls and little toy figurines, uh, military figures. It, it's appalling in every way. And then the other thing I learned that I learned the other day was that, and I'm sure this is common knowledge, but I learned it, that they, um, they, they disinterred Robert E. Lee's entire family who had previously been buried and moved them to Lexington because Henry Lee had been buried down in Georgia or South Carolina or someplace. They brought his father up to Lexington so they could all have a party, uh, I guess, in death. But it was just, it's a, this, this, we wouldn't do this for other people. There is no, there are very few other people in our national legacy where we would say, hey, we need a place where we can bury them. We can bury their family. We can have a toy, sh a gift shop with toys for the kids to celebrate their legacy. We can have a chapel to worship them. I mean, there are very, there are very few other people. I can't name one even that I could think of that would be like, yeah, this is the person that we can all uh, uniformly agree on. Like they do about Robert E. Lee in Lexington at Lee Chapel. They, they used to have just one thing. They used to sell a, a postcard uh, that said it had a picture of Lee Chapel and it said Westminster Abbey of the Confederacy. Wow. Wow. Confederatorium was your way. Oh, tie broke up oh. for a minute. So this is uh, this is this is the type of town it is. And that's why we have to be able to recognize it. Talk about it. I would now, like to highlight Oh, go I'm ahead. Sorry, yeah, I was, but... was going to ask you too if you were were you were you one of the classes that was forced to do your honor pledge in the chapel at Anike? No, we weren't forced to do that. I think they changed it the year prior. Um, but I did want to highlight that up until recently, there were only cameras on two two places on campus, and it was in the parking deck and then in the chapel. And we would tell the institution, like, you know, there are things happening to women on campus. There are things happening to students of color on campus. Like we want cameras so that you can see like who, who our attackers are and the institution refused, but then you're safeguarding Robert Ely's body. It doesn't make any sense. When I first went into the chapel, it just feels demonic and ritualistic. I don't feel like there's any other way to really describe it, but it's just, it's, it's nothing of God. 
and again, it's embarrassing. Like the school should be embarrassed to have something like this, but I was going to bring up the gift shop too. Like things that are distinctly said in the Bible that God disdains, they will do it on the campus. They will do it in that, in that chapel and do it proudly. Yeah. I, I've, I've only been in the one time and actually the one time I've been in, I was with Adonike. Um, or no, that was my second time. So like, yeah, I briefly went in and was like, I have to get out of here. And then we did a formal tour um, where everything was explained to me. And, you know, having everything explained to me made it exponentially worse. Right. It, you know, I, it was bad when you saw it. And then the explanation of, of, of what and why uh, made it worse. And I believe is it's, I think it's still maybe run by the daughters of the Confederacy. Like the university is kind of like, it's on our campus. The name has changed the university chapel. Um, but they allow the daughters of the Confederacy to do the tours and everything else. So, um, they, they get very uncomfortable when black people walk in, <laughs> I will say, cause I walked in with a tour of all black people and they were like, Oh my God, what's going to happen here. Um, you know, they, they are used to having a captive audience of people who want to be there. Um, uh, which, which also speaks to a lot. It speaks to what Nika said. Like they know that they shouldn't tell me that they're going to Lee Chapel uh, to, to have their Mecca moment. But, you know, and they, and, but they are, they are aware enough that they get uncomfortable when a black person sees it, right? They get uncomfortable. Uh, now, Ty and Rob, you both have broken up with the lost cause, even though you are Southerners um, and, and deeply enmeshed in it and deeply kind of indoctrinated in it. Uh, Rob, what led you to, you know, kind of see the light and and to recognize who Robert E. Lee really is? It was strong women of color uh, who had the ability to tell me and the courage and the strength to tell me that what I had been hearing my entire life in a Christian school, um, in a in a private Christian school, and then um, and in family lore and history was not what what was meant to be for God's beloved kingdom for the world. And I took that very seriously being called to ministry that maybe I was being told something that wasn't right. Um, and these were women I trusted and continue to trust to this day uh, who had the ability and the courage. And again, it took courage. I mean, it takes courage to tell a Robert Lee in the South um, that maybe what you've heard all this time, isn't what it should, what it should look like in our retelling of our history, in our understanding of our history, and in our understanding of each other. Um, I, I don't think my parents were actively racist in, in, in uh, propping up the legacy of Robert E. Lee, but they sure is, they, they, they lived with it for a while too, that we all did. We all did as a family until the, these women had the courage. I mean, one of them was, was literally my nanny. I had a black nanny in the 1990s. I mean, that was how, this is, this is how bad it can be in the South, this legacy that lives on and on and on. And so for me, as I, as I, as I learned from her and I learned from my confirmation mentor, uh, Bertha Hamilton, that, 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 there is a different way of doing this life together and it doesn't have to be with white supremacy and racism and celebrating leaders like Robert E. Lee. Um, and so that was my initial breakup and it's been a challenge, right? Carlos, because I've had people come at me with every sort of thing, whether you're not related to him, whether you're not, you're not, whatever. I, none of this matters to me. Their work still needs to be done. Um, there is work to do. Um, now we've been able to take our genealogies and get them done and do all the stuff that needs to be done. But that's, that's, that's also kind of a, a point to make that, that people, when, when, when you start to rock the boat a little bit and say, this is not how it should be, 
people don't like it and people will fight you tooth and nail any way they can find. Uh, because if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything kind of thing. And this has been the issue that I've decided to stand on in my life and public ministry is that, that there is more to be done in this world. The lost cause uh, just has some different wording and different language right now. And we saw that in the previous administration. We've seen that in our current realities. We see it all over our, our, our country today. So we have to address this faithfully. And that's been my mission this entire time. You know, and and Ty, in your book, um, you know, I'd love to hear how you also broke up with the lost cause. But but when I was reading your book, what I found interesting was the parallels to January 6th and the idea that an election was invalid um, and the start of the Civil War over an election that is also invalid. Right. Like there is a direct parallel between then and now. Um and, and, you know, just I'm not a historian, I'm a business law professor, but I can see and, and I but but in, in bringing up the fact that I'm a business law professor, I can see the economic ramifications between the two as well. In, in, in what I study that we have, you know, this, you know, economic force, you know, in the South and with slavery that drives the country that no one wants to break up with claiming an election is invalid, starting a war. We have economic inequality you know, at a level that has never been seen before now, invalid election, insurrection again. Um, and so I, I kind of think we don't get to now without the lost cause, right? I don't think we get to now without the fact that so many people are wedded to the lost cause. Um, so I, I'd, I'd love to hear how you broke up with the lost cause myth um, and, and kind of what you think it means and what lessons can be learned from your experience in dealing with, you know, a new lost cause myth today. Yeah, I, I, well, history history is dangerous because it challenges our myths and our identities. And when somebody uh, challenges that, the reaction is, Rob, as all of you have found, it can be ferocious. So I, I broke up it with, with three ways. I mean, I, I wanted to be a Virginia gentleman. I wanted to be like Lee. When I was growing up as a kid, on a scale of one to 10, Lee would have been an 11. And even though I went to church every Sunday, I would have put Jesus maybe five or six. I mean, it was, it was a reverential treatment of him. But I broke up with a couple of reasons. One, my identity was no longer Virginia gentleman. It was army officer. And I took that oath really seriously. The oath I took in Lee Chapel, surrounded by Confederate flags, was actually an anti-Confederate oath written in 1862. So if you've ever served in the federal government, that oath is an anti-Confederate oath. Uh, you know, no foreign enemies, foreign and domestic. That's talking about Confederates. So when I found that out, I was like, oh my God, that's, so that's one, I became an army officer. Two, I became an intellectual, I became an academic, I became a scholar. And when I was studying this at West Point, I realized that West Point was an anti-Confederate monument in the 19th century. They were seen as traitors. And I never really thought about that word traitor. Article three, section three of the constitution, as you know, says um, that treason shall only be levying war against the United States. That's the only crime in the constitution. And I said, well, and that's why West Point banished Confederates. So when did West Point, this was my area of study, when did they bring Confederates back to memorialize them? 1930s, 1950s, 1970s, when integration came. So it was a reaction to integration. So it made me realize that Confederate memorialization is the same thing as white supremacy. It's just a different side of the same coin. And the third reason was I married a woman uh, who is incapable of lying. And I grew up lying. My whole culture lied. And after I was with her for so long, uh, it just finally, it finally, you know, the, the sort of the, the, the smoke cleared and I could see the lie that I was fed and that I believed for so long. So those were the ways. Now, as for the big lie, I mean, I firmly believe that, that the U.S. Army is not going to, that we're not going to have 
30% of the army leave and go fight again. That's just not going to happen. But I tell you, we know as historians that the, we are 100% um, effective on how we can predict the future. We're always wrong. We cannot predict the future. And so the only way to ensure that we can t- retain democracy, that we retain what we love as Americans, is to ensure that, we're, that we are fighting for it nonviolently uh, through the ballot box and through, through protest if that's necessary. So I certainly believe that we have to do all we can, and, whether, and it's the five of us on this doing what we can right now to tell a more honest, truthful story to make sure that we as Americans have our voice heard. You know, now... You know, my my next uh, the next thing I'd like to talk about because um, you know we've we've discussed what the lost cause is we've we've explained Lee Chapel, you know what does it mean to retain the name of Robert E Lee in modern times, um, you know even post January sixth post Charlottesville, um, you know post all of the racial reckoning next summer, you know what does it mean for our institution to to to, to make the affirmative choice of making the statement that the trustees made and and deciding that they're going to continue to try to separate the man into two and to honor him as an academic and not as a war hero. Um, And I'll throw that one to Mika. What do you you think it means for us to to keep the name? Sure. I think that it means that any attempts to recruit Black students and students of color, any attempts to advanced diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives on campus, any attempts to recruit and retain faculty of color, uh, they're, they're kind of shooting themselves in the foot a little bit. They're kind of shooting themselves in the foot. And I say that because the decision to remain named after a man who fought to preserve slavery um, is something that to me says that black people's feelings on this issue don't matter. And if Black people's feelings about racism do not matter in any institution, um, how will they be able to trust that institution to do what's in their best interest? Uh, And I think that that's really what's at the crux of the article I wrote a couple months ago um, for the Chronicle of Higher Education uh, titled The Assault on Black Faculty, uh, because my concern isn't so much the name of the institution. I knew what the name was when I accepted the job, right? I, I, I was fully aware that it was named after Robert E. Lee when I chose to accept this position. My concern isn't so much the name in and of itself, but what the decision to keep the name in light of the issues it poses, what what that means. I think that that's the key issue. Um, Because the question for me that I was asking in that article is really, if the board of trustees, whether it is at WNL or at another institution, if the board of trustees does not recognize how this country's racist past influences its racist present, then how will they understand the value of work that looks at that very intersection? I'm a historian of African-American history. I study Black women's history, Black feminism in the United States. I dabble a little bit in the Caribbean. And my work really tries to draw a lot of contemporary connections. I'm not interested in the 19th century or 19th century Black women's history uh, because I'm fascinated by that time period in and of itself, uh, but I'm interested in the ways that Black women have been saying the same thing for 200 years. Uh, And so if this is the research that I'm doing, right, to try to use African-American history or to try to understand African-American history in an attempt to understand the present and create a better future, 
Um, this, the, the decision to change, or rather the decision not to change the name, um, is sort of flying in the face of that. Um, it is sending a statement, I think, about what type of work, what type of scholarship or research or teaching is valued or not valued at the institution. I think that it is also sending a signal about which people and whose opinions are valued or not valued at the institution. And that, to me, I think is more significant than whether the name of the institution is Washington and Lee University or not. Uh, I'm less concerned with the name as I am with the impact of the decision to keep it despite knowing how harmful it is. I'd also add that there's no conscious effort to make it even if they wanted to keep it and someone said, okay, let's keep it, but we need to do work around it. There's no active work around it, at least from what I've seen to actually acknowledge the painful past. If they wanted to keep it, it's just, we're going to keep it regardless of how it makes you feel. And, you know, I actually had this experience. I just adopted two amazing girls and I had to decide for myself, what's, what's going to be the deal with their names. And so we did end up giving them the Lee name, but we've been very careful uh, to make sure that their education surrounding my history, their history now, is one that is that is effective. And, and when you tell history, you're honest. When we were at Duke Chapel um, not too long ago, there they had to remove the statue of Robert E. Lee there. And my oldest daughter asked, well, what happened there? Why is there no statue there? And I said, there was a very bad man who did some horrible things and didn't like people and didn't treat them with fairness and dignity. And so they took his statue down and that made sense for her. So if it can make sense for a four-year-old, why we aren't doing this the way we are now, uh, then it can make sense to the faculty, to the trustees, uh, to the board, to all the people at Washington and Lee who seem to be relegated in the past. And there needs to be that hard work done of not only if you're going to remove it, great, but there also needs to be the hard work of making sure that the, 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 the that stays that way, that there is no repeated uh, history in any sense of the phrase. You know, I, I agree with both, you know, added, both uh, Rob and Nika, um, you know, in their statements, you know, what is acknowledged is that it's painful for black people. You know, it, that's what's acknowledged explicitly in their state, their statement. And it's like, we hear you, but um, is what is said in their statement. Um, and what I find interesting about that, about the acknowledgement of what it does to black people is one, it kind of assumes that Robert E. Lee and the legacy doesn't hurt white people, right? It's that, that white people aren't actually bothered. Um, and I and I've I had some friends and, you know, colleagues who are alums who are like, how dare they assume that I'm OK with this? Um, and and so I would love to hear we have the benefit of having two alums on the panel as well. Um, you know, Adenike, you know, what does it mean to you? What's your opinion as someone who attended the school, who lived on the campus um, and the fact that one, they acknowledged, you know, the pain to black people and didn't do anything? You know, what what does it mean to retain the name for, for you as an alum? We'll start with Ty. Uh, Ty, as a as a white alum, does it matter to you? And, and, yes, and how do you it, feel about that statement? It, it absolutely matters to me because it means that I'm st I graduated from General Lee's College, and that's it, it, the school now is so much better than General Lee's College. But as long as you have that name, as long as you have that name, by the way, there are only two other schools in the country that bear the name of a Confederate monument, a Confederate general, and only two. And, and, and those are fine schools, Gordon State, I can't remember the other one, but they're not a top 10 liberal arts college. 
And, and WNL is a top 10 liberal arts college, but it can't be that and named after someone who fought so long, so hard, so well for such an awful cause, who chose treason to preserve slavery. So yes, I, I think it, 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 it shows that the board of trustees is still thinks of this as General Lee's College, when in reality, it's not General Lee's College. It is a fundamental misrepresentation of who you are as an institution now. And, it, and yeah, it angers me incredibly to know that. You know, I'm on a commission right now that's going to change the names of Army posts. Um, the things at West Point are going to change. All these things are changing because we recognize that. Unfortunately, uh, the, the WNL is not doing that. I do think it's interesting that as I go on the, the website, Boy, it's hard to find Lee's name now. It's WNL, 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 WNL. It seems like there is sort of a a a back and that sort of a, a quiet campaign to rename it WNL without actually saying it, which I think is interesting and and I, it bears uh, bears noting. Adonike, yeah, it just it, it makes me feel like I made the wrong decision. Um, it just lets me know that the school doesn't want to cut their ties to racism. They want to uphold it. And you can see it in, in different ways. I believe that when we had a meeting, we brought up General's readout. And I brought up the fact that, you know, they're responsible for tormenting a lot of people in our community. Why won't our school just separate from them or make a statement? We did research to see they were actually giving the institution. That year, it was only $200,000. I've given more money to the institution than they have at this point. But th that's, that's just what the school likes to do. That, that's the culture. The culture is racist. You know, I affirmatively chose not to mention General's Redoubt um, in this episode. Um, one, because I don't like to give them uh, any more publicity or credit. Um, but, but for those who are not affiliated with the Washington Lee community, um, it is a group of alums who, um, one, have actively opposed the hiring of most, I think, all of the recent Black people who've been hired, um, such that like we don't get their emails. They email all the professors on campus. They don't email the Black people. Um, and uh, they were the leaders of the retain the name movement. Um, and so it's it's a group of alums who have who have sought to kind of oppose change. Um, and, you know, their claim seems to be that they donate money. And that is why they deserve to have the right to do that. Um, so we've only got one minute left. Uh, we could clearly all talk about this all day, um, but I would be remiss in uh, ending the show without first acknowledging the books of two of our guests. Um, Robert W. Lee, who is a reverend, um, wrote A Sin by uh, Any Other Name, which is a great uh, discussion of his reckoning with, with racism and the heritage of the South and his name. And then I don't have the dust jacket because I took this on the plane, but um, this is uh, Ty Sigley's book, Robert E. Lee and Me. Um, and so I think they're both great books. If you are trying to persuade your relatives that the lost cause is wrong, um, I think their two books are the are, are two, two great ones uh, to share, uh, to bridge that gap. So I appreciate the two of you sharing, sharing those books and, and sharing what it took for you to get um, get to break up with the lost cause, as I say. Um, I wanna thank all of our guests, um, especially, uh, you know, Nika and Adonike, I know that it's hard to share these things and it's hard um, to, to be so vulnerable and to let everyone know what it is that, that we've all been through. Um, so I appreciate you doing that uh, with me on the show today. Um, thank you, Rob, and thank you, Ty, for, for joining us as well and, and for all of your work and your advocacy. Um, Next week, our topic is New Year, New you, New Year, New You, because it is resolution time. And my friend, Dr. Nicole Price-Weiner, will be joining me. Um, and I'm calling it Beyond Resolutions, because I think we all 
make those New Year's resolutions that we do not keep. And uh, Dr. Nicole or Doc Swiner, as she goes on social media, is good at helping you to make some realistic life changes. And maybe one of those life changes is to break up with the lost cause, right? Maybe that is what someone is going to do next year. Thank you all for joining me and joining my guests today. You can find me at Carla C on all platforms. And if you ever miss the show airing live, it is available on all the podcast platforms on the Voice America channel, on my YouTube channel. You can find it and hear it in anywhere, anytime. Uh, so thank you all so, so much. I, I truly appreciate it. Hope you all have great holiday seasons. Um, and uh, thank, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Please join us again next Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another thoughtful discussion.